like to have an argument. Certainly, sir. Um, have you been here before? No, this is my first time. I see. Uh, well, do you want to have just one argument, or would you, or were you thinking of taking a course? Um, what's the price? Well, it's one pound for five minutes, but only eight pounds for a course of ten. Well, I think it would be best if I just started off with a one and then see how it goes. Okay, fine. Um, well, I'll see you who's free at the moment. Um, uh, Mr. DeBakey's free, but he's a bit conciliatory. Uh, yes, try Mr. Barnard, room 12. Room 12. Thank you. What do you want? <laughs> well, the lady outside... Oh, don't give me that, you snotty-faced piece of parrot droppings! <laughs> Shut your fucking god, you tit! It's your type that really makes me puke, you vacuous, toffee-nosed, malodorous pervert! Uh, I came in here for an argument! Oh, oh, this is abuse. Oh, well, that explains that. Oh, you're on Route 12 He's right down the hall. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm very sorry. Not at all, not at all. Stupid kid. Come in. Uh, is this the right room for an argument? I told you once. No, you haven't. Yes, I have. No, you haven't. When? Just now. No, you haven't. Yes, I did. You did not. I did. You didn't. I'm telling you. I did. You most certainly did not. Oh, I I'm sorry. Is this a five-minute argument, or the full half hour? Oh. <laughs> Just the five-minute argument. Oh. Okay. That's it. <laughs> well, you may be wondering what that was all about, besides introducing you to some really well-performed... Uh, classic humor. Uh, that is the experience of many people as they walk into a new community of Christians. They don't necessarily go looking for abuse or looking for arguments, but they often find themselves in a place that's well-skilled at both. And, uh, and Paul doesn't mess around with this. I, I thought about trying to do that by myself and realized i got all these wonderfully gifted people. I'll let them do it. Um, so, thank you guys. Uh, Paul doesn't mess around with us in, in, in this regard and just tells us right from the beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14, hey guys, we're supposed to be the kind of people that welcome others. And when we do, we often welcome them with debates about opinions. And, and I talk in RUF often about how I want this to be a community that's safe, for people, how we are a community that is safe for others, uh, but we won't be safe for others if we're always marked by arguments and beating each other up. We actually have to be marked by a concern for one another, and that's what Paul's going to uh, press upon us today in this chapter. It's a bit of a long chapter um, and a little bit hard to follow, but I think you're up to it. So, chapter 14, uh, 1 through chapter 15, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he can eat anything, the other, uh, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. 
The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that we might, he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let's not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a a difficult text to understand and uh, difficult to accept and difficult to apply. It's always the case, Lord, uh, but even more so tonight. We need your help. Holy Spirit, be gracious to show us yourself in this text and press the truths of this message into reality in our hearts and into reality in our group. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, I don't have an introduction, illustration, you just got it. And uh, it is the case that often uh, when people walk into a Christian community, they may expect to be welcomed and welcomed in love, and, and so they are often. But they also often find Christian communities to be marked by people that are really interested in having detailed arguments about what Paul here calls opinions in verse 1. Now, Paul doesn't put everything in this category. Some things are imperative, non-negotiables, the nature of the gospel. Some things never go away. The Ten Commandments, the commandments to love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. But there are often squabbles, scruples about other things. And, and Paul's basically telling the Romans, you need to be marked not by this squabbling over opinions, but by loving one another. And to have that, you really have to, be, you really have to care for one another, have, have a concern for one another. It doesn't come out of something that you can manufacture. It has to be supernatural, produced anew by the gospel. And tonight we're going to study that and see that, uh, first we're going to try to understand the problem that's going on and, and how we also have that problem. We're going to talk about unwelcoming ways, ways in which we make a, a culture or a group unwelcoming. 
Uh, we're going to talk about uh, what it means to become welcoming, that we need new, a new attitude, an informed attitude. And lastly, how to, to act, that we need actions that are marked by concern. So we're going to start with the unwelcoming ways that Paul is talking about here in chapter 14. And he's writing to this church in Rome that's uh, really, really diverse. It's probably a small church in the biggest city of the day with all kinds of people not like us. It's really hard for us to imagine. But it is easy for us to imagine this dynamic that he describes in verse 1. That people walk in, they should be welcomed, and they shouldn't be welcomed like this. Hey, nice to see you. Hey, we're wondering... (coughs) Do you think if you eat meat, you're going to hell because that guy eats meat? That's the way it seems to be going down. That there, there are these parties within the Roman church that have split out based on their scruples. And people, as they're welcomed, are immediately being cast into these divisive discussions about the way we should think, speak, act, things we should and should not do, into these contentious opinions. And to really understand it, we have to understand the people. And uh, don't get lost thinking this is about issues. This whole sermon's about people. And we really have to understand people. So the people we're dealing with here are really interesting. Um, Paul describes them not as they are ethnically, which is really amazing because this is somewhat of an ethnic issue, Jews and Gentiles. We'll talk about that in a moment. Instead, he calls them weak and strong. And that may sound derisive, but it's not. Uh, Here he classifies the weak in verse 1, those who are weak, And then he goes on to describe them. In verse 2, there are people that will only eat vegetables. Uh, This is nothing like the the choice that that people make today to be be vegetarians for ethical reasons or for health reasons. Uh, This was a conscious choice people made out of theological conviction because they could not imagine getting meat that was kosher. Whether they were Jews who had a concern for keeping the Old Testament Jewish law and they wanted to keep kosher and living in a pagan city. They thought, I can't do that. That's one possible reason they only eat vegetables. Or whether they were Gentiles who grew up going to pagan temples and seeing animals being sacrificed to pagan gods and then sold in the marketplace next door. They go to the butcher and know this was sacrificed to Aphrodite. And then as a Christian, they're thinking, I can't eat that. Whichever the case might be, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, they have... Things going on in their heart that makes it really hard for them to think, I can eat this meat. So they don't eat vegetables. And some of them observe days. This would be probably Jewish holidays from the old calendar. And Paul seems to hint in verse 21 that maybe some of them don't think they can drink wine. The weak are those who think, for some reason, theological or cultural, I can't do some of these things. Then he goes on to describe the strong. He doesn't name the strong or use that word until chapter 15. But they're described throughout. These are the people who look at all these things and say, God made them all. And uh, it was sacrificed to a God that doesn't exist. I don't care. I'll eat that. No big deal. That God doesn't exist. I'll eat your pork chop. Um, The strong are those who don't have any theological hang-ups about these issues. When they see Jesus as being the perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament laws and setting aside those food laws. So for them... Every day is a holiday. The Jewish holidays, well, those are great. But Jesus has come, and now every day is a holiday, and I can eat whatever I want and drink whatever I want every day. It's awesome. That's sort of their attitude. And these people are living together in the same community and trying not to beat each other up. And the way beating each other up looks like is described pretty well by Paul. They both think they're right, of course. I mean, if you don't know that, you don't know anything about people. Um, 
you, you can both be deeply convinced in the argument that you're right. They both think they're right. And the way this plays out is those who are weak look at those who are strong eating these things that they think they can't eat. And they're thinking, you're terribly immature. Actually, you're not, I'm not even sure you're a Christian. How can you eat that pagan piece of meat sacrificed to another god? And they condemn them. They judge them. Meanwhile, the strong look at the weak and say, you're a Christian, but man, you're acting like a baby. Why don't you grow up? And, and they despise them. That's, those are the words that Paul uses. That one condemns the other, the other one despises the other. And what they're doing, and this phrase comes up four or five times in the text, they're passing judgment. They're sitting back, judging one another within the same community. And Paul's saying, this is actually no way to welcome people. To welcome them right into this hornet's nest of judgment. And, and that's what's going on here. And this is not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. This, these realities still exist, cultural and theological, that we can have hang-ups culturally or theologically. So this is sort of funny and sort of weird and sort of a confession. Uh, guys, take careful notes. This worked for me. It probably won't work for you. Um, so I had met Luda. This is a How I Met My Wife story. Um, knowing her unique cultural theological background. My wife grew up in a different country in a different... Uh, Protestant denomination, and I knew enough about them to know what I was getting myself into. She grew up a Russian Baptist. And uh, we had only worked together for one week at this camp before I knew she had no possibility of escaping me. Uh, It was sort of a done deal. Uh, That's actually not true. Uh, It's not true, quite. But... um, but it was true that in some weird way, this is what I'm saying, guys, don't do this. Um, unless you find yourself in the exact same situation, which probably will never happen. Um, it, it really was then or never. Like, we were never going to see each other again. Uh, so after knowing each other for one week, we started talking about marriage. And pretty bluntly, because I knew who she is. She's a Russian Baptist. They're all blunt. Um, not all of them. There's one or two that are nice, but they, they don't survive well. Um, so I, I simply, I mean, I really, we just got right to it. And, and getting right to it meant this. Like, if we're even going to think about seeing each other again, let's not waste time. Could you marry a pastor? Yes. See, Kelly's heard this, and it really upsets her. Um, <laughs> um, could you marry a pastor? Could you be poor? And then the third one, and all those are sort of cultural, theological things. That usually eliminates 99% of, of people. Um, the third one was, I'm a Presbyterian, which means I'll baptize babies and drink. Now, for many of you, that's not a big deal. For her, that's a huge deal. That's a theological, cultural scruple. No one in her family or church does either one of those things. And they're... Well, there's not very good reasons in my mind why they don't baptize infants. But there are theological scruples, I understand. But the, the drinking thing actually makes sense in their culture. There is no drinking in moderation in Russia. I mean, there's like 10 people, maybe. Uh, but by and large, it is widely abused. It sort of makes sense. So I, I, even early on, we were walking this thin line of understanding one another. Um, so that's what's going on. That kind of complex thing still exists here every day around you. And we have to be aware of that if we're not going to pass judgment on each other. And not put obstacles in each other's way. This is a real possibility, and Paul goes right to it. Some of it's attitudinal. You just sort of talk about each other behind each other's back, or even to each other's face and judge each other. But you can also harm one another. 
Paul says damage one another, hurt one another in verses 15 and 20 by putting obstacles in each other's way. I'll give you an illustration of what this looks like. There's a way in which you can liberate yourself and enjoy your liberty that actually throws all your obstacles in someone else's path. So a couple of years ago, most of you weren't even here then, Pittsburgh had a real snowpocalypse. It snowed like two feet in one night and another foot the next day. And students got snowed into my house that night and that weekend. Uh, you should check the forecast before you come to my house on Friday. You don't want that to happen again. Um, Jared was there and he survived. So there's one remaining. He's the only guy that got away alive. Everyone else <laughs> got incinerated. Um, anyway, the um, uh, after like being stuck in this house for 24 hours, one of the guys just had to leave, and uh, it was impossible. They could not plow a road because one of our neighbors had a snowplow, and he used a snowplow to blow three feet of snow out of his driveway into the road and made a four-foot, additional, like, three-foot-high barrier that the snow truck could not get through. It was completely intense. We had to dig it out by snow, with snow shovels, by hand. Uh, And then basically, like, I'm not kidding, lift his car down the road to get him out. Uh, That's what we did to get him out. Uh, And in the same way, there's a way in which we can liberate ourselves, take our junk, and say, I have no problem with drinking. I have no problem with smoking. I have no problem with eating whatever or celebrating any day I want to and throw it right in the lap of our neighbors. And Paul's saying, that's what you're doing sometimes, guys. You're enjoying your liberties and you're flaunting them right in the face of the people around you that have weaker consciences, and it's hurting them. It's hurting them. Um, that's hard for some of you to imagine. But that's what Paul's really going to call us to, is to develop a sensitivity to the people around us to know how to handle those situations, to be actually concerned for them. So how do we become the kind of folks who don't judge, don't pass judgment, and don't throw all our liberties in people's face? Or conversely, how do we become people? Maybe you're thinking, maybe I'm the weak one. How do we become people that aren't so weak in our faith, that enjoy some of these liberties God's given us if he actually means for us to? And it starts with an informed attitude. The... um, the, the, the nature of most of us as humans, when we're in a, in a discussion or a debate over opinions, is to think, yes, we need to start with informing ourselves. Let's start with informing you, because you're wrong. <laughs> I've got all the information, and if you had what I had, you would agree with me. Uh, that is not actually where Paul starts. Where Paul starts this discussion here is saying, okay, we've got, we've got a couple different groups here, you disagree, and the first thing we all need to know is we need to know who we are. And ultimately, Paul never names, again, ethnic divisions. He could do that. It would just be playing to all their natural, sinful prejudices to do that. Instead, what he does is he names what's true of them as they are in Jesus. Who they are ultimately isn't even weak or strong. He he begins in verse 3 with this litany of four truths about them as they are in Jesus. First, they are those who have been accepted by God. Verse 20 says, welcome these people, not with arguments. And he goes on to say, because God has welcomed them, in verse 3. God himself has welcomed them. Whether weak or strong, God has accepted them into the family. And then in verses 4 through 9, Paul goes to great lengths to say, whether you're weak or strong, you're servants of the same Lord. One Lord, Jesus, came and lived and died and rose from the dead, and he's the master and you're the servant. And then he goes on and explains whether you abstain, if you abstain, you abstain in his honor. 
You do it in thanks to him. And if, you, if you're enjoying it, you say, I'm not saying I'm enjoying this steak. To God's glory, thank you, Jesus, for this wonderful, juicy steak. Paul is saying you can do both, and you should do both, fully convinced that it's for God's glory, uh, that you're both servants of the same master. And third, that you're all family members. Verse 10. And he says it sort of negatively here. Don't wound your brother. But it's a, it's a reality. That the, the weak brother that you want to despise is your brother. That the strong brother that you think might even be a Christian because he's doing all these things that you think only non-Christians do, he's actually your brother. Because in Christ, God has adopted you into the family. And then fourth, that whether you're weak or strong, that everyone... Everyone, everyone, everyone. This is verses 11 and 12. Everyone eventually has to stand before God the Father and face judgment. And, and the good news here, and Paul's been talking about this for 11 chapters now, is that if you're in Jesus, and both the weak and the strong are, that you walk out of that hearing, no condemnation is yours. Chapter 8. You have nothing to fear or dread. That is the fourfold truth about this community. Just one of those alone, just one of those should be enough where you say, I have no right to judge you. I have no right to judge you. It gives us four. So we have no right to pass judgment on each other because of what's true of us as Christians. Now, uh, Paul does go on to say what he thinks is right. Uh, He says in verse 14, he says in other places too, Paul's opinion on the matter. He's not saying these things are all relative. It doesn't matter what you think about these things. Uh, Paul is into crossing his T's and dotting his I's. And so he's going to hold up as he has throughout this whole book. Jesus is the only way of salvation. You really are supposed to embrace the gospel from the heart. Maturity looks like loving God with your whole heart and loving your neighbor and obeying the Ten Commandments. Those things are not negotiable. And here, where we get into these matters of scruples, Paul has a strong opinion. He says in verse 14, I am absolutely convinced that everything is funny. And he bases this not on the way he feels, but based on what Jesus said in Mark 7. Freshman, you did this last night. You know all about it. Declared all, all foods clean. What defiles you comes out of your heart. It's not what goes into your mouth. And what happens to Peter and Acts as well, that uh, there's nothing outside there that God created that's dirty that defiles you. Paul's convinced of this. It's true. I can enjoy the steak or the wine or even that pork chop sacrifice to that pagan god five seconds ago. Because I know that god doesn't exist. I can enjoy it all. But, Paul also recognizes another truth. And it's right there, around the same verse. I think it's in verse 14 even. Um, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. That's really important. Paul's saying, I look into the world, I look at all these things you're fighting about, all of it's good, I can eat it all. But, if you're not convinced of that, you shouldn't eat it. You shouldn't eat it. If you're not convinced of that, if you're, if you're one of these who I would call weak, you shouldn't eat it. For you, it is unclean. You, in other words, you are not allowed to sin against your conscience. In verse 5, he says, you have to be fully convinced in your heart what's right. In verse 23, he says... If you have doubts about what you're about to do, you're not sure you should do this, and you do it, you're actually sinning. Because you're sinning against your conscience. Now, um, Paul here helps us out a little bit. He's told us who we are, he tells us what's right, and now he's going to help us sort through the mess a little bit by telling us what's most important. 
Because we can easily bog down in the details and feel like we need to call in a negotiator. Like, oh, we're going to get out of this mess. Um, and Paul here helps us by prioritizing things and says, what's really important here is what God is doing. In verses 15 through 17, he talks about what God is doing. He calls it the kingdom of God. And that the kingdom of God, what God is doing, all these new things that God is building, the work he's doing in our lives, the work he's doing in our community, it's not all about scruples. Debating theological minutia. What food you eat, what drinks you drink, what things you abstain from. Instead, the kingdom is about righteousness and peace and joy. And if you're missing those things in your life, you're missing all of it. That's what it's supposed to be about. And coupled with that, as he's talking about the nature of the kingdom of God and righteousness and peace and joy that we should be experiencing as a community, he says, and we should be loving each other. That if I know something is good for me, but I know you can't do it because of your conscience, and I eat it anyway, I'm not loving you. And Paul says that right there is the deal. I am called to walk in love. That the kingdom of God that we walk in as a community should be marked by a love for one another. That says, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm going to do what's best for you. I'm going to do what's best for you. Uh, I'm a... I have a lot of experience in both these camps. Um, it is no great... You know, no, I, would, I want to make this abundantly clear. There is no first or second class person here. It's not like the stronger Christians are better Christians. Uh, they just... So the weaker Christians haven't yet worked out the implications of the gospel. Life. Um, so I, I have a lot of experience being the weaker brother and some being sort of the stronger brother of this text. I, I, I grew up in sort of a rule-based environment in Christianity. I was all full of all kinds of rules-based false righteousness uh, before I became a Christian, uh, which means I was a jerk. I really was. I was a jerk. And then I became a Christian. You're laughing because I'm still a jerk. Um, <laughs> some things die hard. Um, but they do slowly die. Um, so when I became a Christian, I was still marked by a lot of these things. Um, I went away to college, having just become a Christian. And I was struggling with all these rules that I thought were things that Christians must do or mustn't do or that made you mature. And I was really, really strongly convinced about drinking and smoking and dancing and tattoos and the kind of music you could listen to. And this could go on forever and ever. Uh, and as I look back at myself objectively, I'd say there was three things that were true about me spiritually that any objective person probably could have seen. One, that I really was a Christian. I really did trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. And I was growing. Uh, but two, I was a weak Christian. I wasn't really sure why I believed all those things. I didn't really know how to mature. I didn't really know how to live the Christian life very well. I did not have a lot of joy and peace and righteousness. And thirdly, to the world out there, one, I didn't care about them. I didn't have any love for non-Christians at all. I wasn't seeking their good. But two, if I had, I would have smelled really bad to them. Not because I didn't shower or because I lived in an all-male freshman dorm. I did live in an all-male freshman dorm. Guaranteed to make you smell bad. And you just walk through there and you just smell. It smells like puke. In pizza boxes. And, um, but I would have smelled like legalism. I would have smelled like rules. I wouldn't have smelled like love. Because I was marked by all these concerns. And some of you are thinking, well, you're still a jerk, but you're not like that. So what happened? 
And a couple of things happened, and it happened, I mean, I got good teaching over years, and I would suggest you keep on that path. Um, but also people speaking into my life that I wouldn't have expected. And there's, this was not a huge life-changing moment for me, but it is sort of a picture of where I was and what I needed to hear. Uh, part of my weakness as a Christian was I, I thought I had to reject a lot of the things about the world that I no longer reject and embrace things about like a Christian subculture that I thought would make me mature. So I had to listen to certain kinds of Christian music to be mature. And I had to wear certain kinds of clothes to be mature. And so I wore all these Christian t-shirts. Nothing wrong with Christian t-shirts. Um, but what was wrong with this one was I, I wore it to a meeting one day, a meeting like this, and a girl walked up and said, what's the verse on the back? And I was like, oh. I mean, I acted like I knew because I knew she caught me. And she started giving me verse, like a word, and I'd give like another word. And she's like, what's the chapter? And I'm like, I think I got the wrong book even. Like it said it. I would have thing once a week. I just had no idea what it was. In other words, I was a walking billboard to the world about how they needed to repent and grow. But I hadn't bought it into my own heart at all. That's who I was. It was not a pretty moment for me. <laughs> and then the other great thing that happened is I took a trip overseas with a missionary. In which I did really no one almost any good at all. Because um, <laughs> I was so immature. Oh, why in the world did they let me go? I guess I'm just desperate. I don't know. Uh, so I'm walking around in the middle of nowhere. And like literally like nine miles from civilization in the wilderness of, of Kenya. And, and talking to these. At some point, the, mission, the, the pastors and the Christians there must have been like, why are you here, man? You have no idea what you're talking about. Um, man, I, I met them, and I saw a depth of their relationship with Jesus that challenged me. They were not theologically trained. They were not wealthy. They were not even well-educated. Some of them were educated. But they taught me things about Jesus. They really did. They had a depth of dependence. They had a joy and a righteousness and a peace. These kind of things that marked the kingdom that I did not have. And I walked away thinking, I need that. How do I get that? Stop that. Um, so, um, all of us have some growing to do in, in this area. We all do. Uh, you may be weak. You, you may be struggling with, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this or that. I, I don't know if I can do those things or not. And I want to encourage you to educate yourselves. To study scripture. To focus especially on Jesus. Uh, that's how you figure out what the Bible is all about. The Bible is about Jesus and what he's done. And the way you get stronger is not by crossing every T and dotting every I. It's figuring out who Jesus is and what he's done and how that applies to you. Uh, but then ask. Don't just assume that the people around you are immature. Especially the Christians that are doing things that you think are impossible. Or uh, assume that the people around you are Christians. Uh, we've had some people go away with us to conferences some of you, perhaps in the room, on the way with us to conferences, and you've come away sort of disdaining that conference because in your mind, the people that are immature, they're not on fire for Jesus. Could be a couple reasons for that. One, your definition of on fire may not be very biblical. Two, the people there may not actually be Christians. And that's okay. Because I want non-Christians to be a part of our group to go hear the gospel. Don't, don't make assumptions. Ask them. Go to them and ask them, what's going on? Why do you do this? Why do you think this is okay? Don't, don't be crude or mean about it, but don't make assumptions. And then that applies to you as well. That those of you that think you're mature, don't make assumptions about the people around you and their immaturity. Seek to understand them. Get to know their story. 
Maturity looks like empathy. It really does. If you can't empathize with where someone is, you don't really understand them. And uh, crawl in there. Ask some questions. Get to know them. So lastly, uh, not only do we need to have informed attitudes but concerned actions. This is pretty short, but it's pretty hard. And uh, to, to act the way we need, to behave the way we need, which is not crossing the T's and dotting the I's, eating this or not eating this necessarily, we need, to, we need to know what the goal is, the ultimate goal is. And the ultimate goal here, according to Paul in verse 15, is love. And we should be walking in love. That as a community and as individuals, as Christians, we should really love one another. And uh, that's actually a far cry from the way most of us relate to other people. That when new people or weak people or needy people walk in, our typical reaction is not love. Our typical reaction, honestly, is indifference, probably. Like, I don't have the energy to disdain you. I actually have to get to know you to disdain you. Just sort of like, oh, I'm glad you're here. I probably won't think about you ever again. Uh, that's a pretty a far cry from love. Uh, we actually have to enter in and get to know them. And as we do... As we do get to know them, um, we have to submit. We talked about submission a couple weeks ago, maybe last week. This deep thing inside of our hearts that we think is most important. We think, most of us, that the most important thing is that we be right. Some of you in particular think it's the most important thing in the world that I be right. As a Christian or as a person in an argument, I have to be right. And Paul here is saying, No! Actually, the most important thing is that you be loving. You actually have the right to eat whatever you want. You have the right. There will be situations in which the loving thing to do is not to exercise your right. To say, I have the right to eat this, but because of who you are and where you are right now, or where we are, I'm not going to do that. I I really sort of struggle to uh, figure out what this looks like for us every day probably because it's so particular to your context like your lives are really different than mine you live in a dorm or you live in south oakland or live in a house in squirrel hill but i tried and um this renouncing of our rights is getting out of the way so that other people can grow not throwing paul calls it throwing obstacles in people's path verse 13 um what's it look like for you um uh, it means for some of you better with this last week, old enough, and you've made a decision in your life that you can do this, it means that you won't always take the drink, or you won't always smoke a cigar or pipe, or you'll at least ask the people around the table if they're okay with you doing that. And maybe not because they're really scruples, but maybe because you know that if you start drinking, they're going to get drunk again and do something they shouldn't do again. There's another way to look out for someone's weakness. Um, it may mean that because of someone's scruples or convictions, you will not invite them to watch this movie with you that you think is completely fine. Actually, I'm waiting for some of you to roll your eyes because these are the kind of things that, frankly, we don't like to do. We like to think we're big boys and girls and we can't do that and we have the right to do whatever we want. And I sort of get you. I know where you're coming from because I'm that way too. I am telling you that loving someone looks like looking out for their best. Actually getting to know them well enough to say, are you going to be all right with this or am I going to wound you like this? And if you don't know anyone like this, then you need to ask around or go spend some time with like a 12 or 13 year old. I'm serious. Someone who actually has a tender conscience. 
Because Carol and Daniels do have tender consciences. And, and, and remind yourself that there are people that actually have consciences. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then maybe they'll remind you that we do too. Um, for some of you, it might look like a willingness to, uh, well, sing some old RUF hymns and not talk about how these are old, tired, stupid hymns that are just dry and boring. Or some of you old school people that are used to singing only RUF hymns that you would be willing to sing Shine, Jesus, Shine, even though it makes you want to tear your eyeballs out and <laughs> stuff it in your ear holes. Um, it means you'd be willing to bend over backwards in love for someone else's good. Um, it means in your small group discussion when you don't know everyone in the room, or when you do know them well enough that you won't go off on 10-minute-long philosophical diatribes that no one in the room cares about. I'm not talking to anybody in particular. Um, but because you are really looking out for their good. So that's what, it calls, that's what it means to get out of the way. And as we're getting out of the way, what we want to do is also point people to the way. We want to point people to the thing that matters the most. Paul saying in verse 13, don't throw obstacles in their path. Don't throw stumbling blocks in their path. And it's really interesting language there, that stumbling block word. Uh, and it's interesting because Paul uses it again in another place. Here it's negative. You don't want to throw obstacles in people's path as they're trying to grow up and become mature. The other place Paul uses it is in chapter 9. This was like a month ago, two months ago. You've probably forgotten. But there in chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, he describes somebody as a stumbling block, and that somebody is Jesus. Uh, what he's describing there is a bunch of people who are trying really, really hard to please God by obeying every law and doing every scruple right. That the Jews are trying to obey the law perfectly to fulfill their righteousness, to be righteous enough for God, and uh, they can't. In fact, they're tripping over, as Paul would say, the stumbling block. That Jesus is the perfect righteous one, and they actually have to lay down their efforts and build, their, build themselves on him. And they stumble over him. And that's what we need to do. We need to set aside our obstacles, the things we want to throw in people's way, and give them Jesus to consider. Point them to him. And, and not to ourselves. Jesus who, he gave up all his rights. Okay, He had rights, he gave them up, he came down. Uh, Jesus who perfectly obeyed the law. Every bit of it. We're trying to figure out what we have to obey. He did it all. Every bit of it. We pass judgment on ourselves. Ultimately, God passes final judgment on Jesus for us. So when we do stand before the judge, God looks at us and sees Christ's righteousness. And he says to us, you're not condemned. You're my beloved son. You're beautiful. Come. Come into me. Uh, be like Jesus. Uh, that is what it means for us to understand uh, and what it looks like for us to point others along the way. So, I'm going to draw this to a close right here. Uh, how is RUF a safe place? At the end of the year, you've been in RUF all year, and now I'm talking about what RUF is. Um, but it's sort of fitting. I, I talk about how I want RUF to be a safe place for people. How is it a safe place? In, in some ways, you know by now it's not completely safe. You're going to come every week, and I'm going to tell you that you're selfish, you're sinful, you drink too much, you're anxious, you fret, you don't trust God like you should. I do all those things every single week, right? 
Just make sure you're paying attention. I pretty much do that every week. Uh, which is to say, I'm honest about all of us, and I don't treat any of, any of us any differently. And I'll tr- I don't exclude myself from that company. Um, RUF is safe in this. There is no second-class or first-class citizens here. No super mature people. I'm not... I'm not uh, we're not interested in becoming a group of super elites that get everything right. Actually, we don't think that even exists. Instead, what we think is we are all people that have sinned and rebelled that desperately need Jesus. All of us. So that whether you're here as a non-Christian or someone who's confused or someone that's weak in your faith, you really do believe Jesus is good and loves you, but you've got so many questions, you don't know what to do or someone here who's strong in your faith. You all need Jesus all the time. You really do. That's how it's safe. It really is safe. And that makes it safe for you to ask your questions and to come up with your doubts and to be honest about your scruples and your issues. You, you really can be safe and be honest. The question I have for you is, are you honest? And are you welcoming? Are you a safe place? Personally, are you a safe place for others? I would assume that most of you in the room would actually assume that you fit in the strong category. I assume that for a couple of reasons. One, I know you. Two, this generation, you tend to over-grade yourself in everything. Uh, you all think you're above average at everything. Um, and I like that, too. So most of you put yourselves in the strong category. I want to ask you if that's true. Because Paul says, if you're strong, you should actually be marked by a genuine concern for others. Are you seeking others out? Are you pursuing their good? Are you trying to get to understand them? Are you asking them questions? Are you willing to forgo your rights for them, for their good? Are you? Because that's what Christ did for you. That's really what he did for you. And when we do that, when we do that, we enter into his righteousness and joy and peace. We become a beautiful, wonderful, loving, welcoming community that people really want to be a part of. All right, let's pray together. Jesus, this is a uh, it's a strange, hard thing.